Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, use 1 John 1.9 to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to stay the word, ready to allow the Holy Spirit to teach you and challenge you with the things that we study this evening. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the many ways that you provided for us this day and the fact that your grace is ongoing and unearned and undeserved. Father, above all things, we thank you for our so great salvation, that we have a complete and sufficient salvation because your Son died on the cross for our sins and that we can have access to that salvation and the infinite blessings that come with it simply by trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. Now, Father, as we study your word and we look back in history as to how you have worked to bring about uh, your plans and purposes in history, we pray that we'll see how these things uh, help us even today in our own spiritual life and how the principles that were true then are just as much true today in terms of our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1, and I'll put this uh, first slide up here on the board, back up, to give us an outline of the first part of our study. We're just, I'm not digging a post hole into all, everything that we're going to cover in the first 19 chapters. I'm really trying to focus on those first 18 chapters. I see looks of doubt and cynicism out there. <laughs> looks of disbelief. Well, maybe I won't cover it in as short a time as I thought, but we will cover it in a shorter than normal amount because we are just looking at the first 18 chapters as sort of a prelude to a study on Elijah and Elisha. So the first 11 chapters focus on, focus on the, focuses, the first 11 chapters focus on the reign of Solomon. We have the transition from David to Solomon in the uh, first chapter, uh, the overall section, chapter 1 through 11, and the first division, 1, 1 through 2, 12, we have the transfer of the kingdom from David to Solomon. In the first chapter, we see David uh, cor uh, coronate Solomon despite a power grab, the attempted coup of his son Adonijah. That's the first chapter. The second chapter, verses 1 through 12, we find David's final exhortation and challenge uh, to Solomon regarding the way he should rule in relation to the Mosaic Covenant. Background for understanding what happens in these, these two books, First and Second Kings, come first from an understanding of the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, Abrahamic Covenant is summarized in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It's established in Genesis 15 and uh, 17 as well. The three provisions that we've seen relate to land, seed, and blessing. The Abrahamic covenant, remember, is the foundation for really understanding everything in the Bible from Genesis 12 to Revelation because this establishes the Jews as God's chosen people through whom he is going to work, and he has various promises, specifically the land promise, to Abraham that has never been fulfilled. It wasn't fulfilled for Abraham. It wasn't fulfilled under 
uh, with the Jews under Joshua when they initially invaded the land. It isn't fulfilled even under Solomon, the, the, the apex of their expansion, their growth, the greatest amount of territory controlled by Israel is in the uh, under the uh, reign of Solomon, and still he doesn't control all the land uh, that was uh, that was promised by God. <clears throat> These three elements each uh, become the foundation for uh, separate covenants. The land covenant is expanded in. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, the Davidic covenant expands the seed provision, and that's in 2 Samuel 7. We looked at that last time, and the blessing is expanded in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Now, the Davidic covenant is the background for understanding what goes on in the book of Kings, because Kings traces what how God works through the house of David uh, in and as well as Israel, but there really is a, tr- a trace, the, the seed of David in relation to the Davidic covenant. So we have as our foundation uh, the passages in Second Samuel seven twelve to 16, Psalm 89, and First Chronicles 17, 11 to 14. There are three elements in the Davidic covenant. God promises David an eternal house. He promises David an eternal kingdom. And he promises David an eternal throne. And it is Solomon in the, in, that is the focal point in the Second Samuel 7 passage. However, we know from what is recorded in First uh, Chronicles chapter 22, verses uh, 5 and following, that David was fully aware much, much earlier, uh, probably aware before the birth of Solomon, that Solomon would be his, would be the heir, not any of his of his other sons, and that the the he would the blessing would pass down through Solomon. So we come to our first chapter, first chapter in the book, and we started looking at it last time, and I broke it down like six scenes in a in an extremely dramatic event. And the first scene we covered last time that takes place in the old king's. Bedroom, and this sets the stage for the political situation in Israel at this time. That's the function of those first four verses to let us know that David is no longer his his uh, strong uh, dominant self. He is no longer the strong leader that we saw in First uh, and Second Samuel. But now he is old. The verbs that are used here are passive. David is weak. David is not engaged in what's going on. He is absent. He's already showing signs of senility. His body is no longer able to warm itself. And so it's necessary for them to follow a standard procedure that was uh, common throughout much of the ancient world up through the Middle Ages. And that was the idea that when someone was old and they their body could no longer keep itself warm, that they would find some uh, young woman who would sleep with them, not in a sexually intimate way, but just to share body warmth. And the idea was that the vitality and strength of the young person would be shared uh, with the older person. And uh, as I pointed out last time, this is common even today in cases of hypothermia when somebody gets um, to the point where their body can't keep themselves warm and they go into a hypothermic state, then the best way to warm them up is to uh, wrap them up with someone else and typically you know, strip down as much as you can and uh, put two people in a bed together and share body warmth to bring them back. So this is not something that <clears throat> is unusual. I also pointed out because people say, well, why, why the emphasis on a virgin? Well, number one, if a woman was married, her husband really wouldn't want his wife lying in bed with the king especially the king with David's reputation. And uh, number two, it was, <clears throat> if you're going to find a single woman, then the, it was standard that they would be a virgin in uh, that time. It wasn't like today when that's a difficult thing to find in the United States because of our loose morals. 
So we, that was the first scene in the first four verses. Now that sets up the fact that the main idea here is that the king is disengaged. Now there's one other thing that comes out of this, and that is by introducing us to Abishag at the beginning. Abishag is young, she's beautiful, she becomes one of the king's concubines. She has a legal status. And this is important because of what will happen later on. So in four short verses through the economy of of words, the Holy Spirit lets us know several things that provide a background for what is about to take place. And then we come to the second scene. The second scene is in verses 5 through 10. Verses 5 through 10, and this is where we are introduced to the fact that uh, Adonijah, who is David's son, is on the verge of instituting a coup to take over the throne. Let's look at verse 5. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Now, this is really a summary statement. This has been going on for some time. He's had the mental attitude, uh, power lust, wanting to usurp the throne as a member of the royal family and as uh, Solomon's older brother, he would have been fully aware of the fact that Solomon was the one that was the designated heir. But he thinks that he, because he is the older brother, has the right of primogeniture, which is the uh, fact that the elder should inherit the uh, <clears throat> should gain the inheritance, not the younger brother. And so he thinks that he has a natural-born right. He is totally self-absorbed. And when he makes the statement that I will reign, it is stated in an emphatic sense in the Hebrew. He doesn't just use the the first-person singular verb for reigning, which is melech, and just saying I'm melech, which means the same thing that I would reign, I will reign. But he reinforces it with the pronoun Ani Amalek. And he says, I will reign. It's going to be me. So the emphasis in the text is on his arrogance and the fact that he's focused on the fact that no one else has the right to reign. Furthermore, as we look at the second part of the verse, we read, and he prepared himself, he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Now, this entails a lot of forethought, planning, and logistics. He will have anywhere from 50 to 100 chariots, maybe more, get as many as he can, as well as bringing out a cavalry unit. And he has 50 men who will surround him and run before his chariot. He is making sure that he has all of the pomp and circumstance and has as great a parade as he possibly can as he goes to the uh, place for anointing. And he uh, wants to get everybody's attention in Jerusalem so that everybody will come out and follow him, and he will accomplish his goal. We are told that in verse 7, or excuse me, in verse 6, that he has been spoiled most of his life. One way to guarantee that your children will grow up arrogant and self-absorbed is to always let them have their way and never teach them anything about authority orientation. One of the most important things that a parent can do is to instill authority orientation into children, teach them to respect authority, teach them self-discipline, and uh, drill that into them in those early years. Don't wait until they're five or six, but start as soon as they begin to exercise their own independent will. Don't let them have their way just because they're sweet and they're cute, and it's easy for you to do that because you're more concerned about your job and your career and all the things that you have to do. Uh, Parenting is a full-time occupation, and today we're seeing... So many of the problems we see with young people for, I mean, and I refer to anybody under the age of probably 35, as we went into a period of time starting back in the, back in the 70s when both parents worked and children were basically left to be raised by a daycare center or raised by teachers or raised by 
uh, some other element of society. Teaching and training a child to accept, be able to accept responsibility when he becomes an adult to instill uh, self-discipline into that child to teach them values is a, a 24-7 responsibility. Parents need to be right there watching, ready to take advantage of every uh, teaching and training operation all the way along. And when the parents are gone and they're letting all of their energy uh, be distracted into their own careers and what they want to do, then that takes away from what they're doing with their children. And Adonijah is a classic example of some of a child who's allowed to get away with whatever, with whatever he wanted uh, to get away with, and he is now going to rebel against authority. And rebellion against authority is always wrong in the Scripture. There's never a valid rebellion against uh, human authority unless that authority is demanding that you do something in violation of what God has instructed. That's the only thing. When you have a conflict of authorities and the higher authority, which is God, is telling you to do one thing, that's the only time that you can legitimately rebel against an authority. This is the kind of thing we saw with uh, the the, uh, Jewish midwives in Exodus chapter 1. Ike was teaching on that back during the summer. Also, the situation with Rahab when she hides the spies. Uh, the situation with Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 when the Sanhedrin demands that they quit preaching the gospel. They have to obey God rather than man. That's the only time you have a legitimate uh, rebellion against, uh, against authority. At no time in life should you get involved in any kind of conspiracy or a uh, whispering campaign against a boss or against a, uh, a coach or against a, a leader, uh, uh, anyone in authority over you, a pastor. The way to handle that is to go, and, and you have any conflict, is to go and address that with that individual personally, one-on-one, and if that doesn't resolve it, then your options are either just to um, keep quiet about it and do the best you can in the situation and take it to the Lord, or to the other option is just to find someplace else to work and move. Now, sometimes that doesn't seem to be an option, and so it's a great opportunity to learn uh, humility. God often puts us in situations where the person in authority is not necessarily a good person, a good authority. He, they may have many different problems, but it's an opportunity to learn authority orientation. When you get into the Scriptures, and there are mandates in the Scriptures to obey various authorities, whether it's in the home, wives being obedient to their husbands, children being obedient to their parents, uh, slaves being obedient to their masters, and that applies to employees being obedient to their employers. Whenever you have these kinds of commands, it's never qualified by saying, uh, children, obey your parents when they're right. You know, slaves, obey your masters when they're doing the right thing. There's never that qualification. We wish it was there. Often we, we kind of hear it like it's there. But it doesn't say that in any place. Why? Because as soon as we... Put, we disobey that authority, we are in essence saying that we are the one who's in authority and it's just another aspect of arrogance and we're following Satan in his path of arrogance and his rebellion against the authority of God. And when we are under an authority that may not be doing what we think they should be doing, when that authority is uh, what we think is unfair or unjust, then it is simply an opportunity for us to trust in the Lord and to learn some genuine, uh, genuine humility. But that's not what Elijah's doing. He would rather uh, <clears throat> try to usurp the authority of both his father David and God and establish himself on the throne. So the lack of parental discipline did its job of preparing him. Now, who was, who was Adonijah? His name, Adonijah, if you look at that last syllable, the last three letters, J-A-H, that comes from the first syllable in the name of God, Yahweh. So Adonijah means my Lord is Yahweh, but what he is doing is just the opposite 
of what his name says. He is rejecting the authority of Yahweh rather than submitting to the authority of Yahweh. He was the fourth son of David by David's wife, Hagith. Now, if you, I don't want to take the time, but you can look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and we have a list of the first sons born to David when he was king at Hebron. Remember, after Saul was uh, Saul killed himself on Mount Gilboa at the end of 1 Samuel. When David becomes king, David is not king over the whole nation initially. The first seven years, he is only king over Judah, and his, uh, his capital is in Hebron. And it's during that time that there is still a civil war, as it were, going on in among the Jews. And 2 Samuel 3.1 says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn son was Amnon by Hinnom the Jezreelitess. Now, Amnon uh, was killed by his brother uh, um, Absalom. The second son is Kiliab. This is the one. Don't ever hear anything more about Kiliab. Apparently, he died when he was young of some some illness. His second son was Kiliab by Abigail. The third is Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai. And the fourth was Adonijah, the son of Hagith. Now, these are born in Hebron, that first seven years. Now, after that, when the kingdom is united, David becomes king of all, of all 12 tribes. He moves his capital to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, we're told in 2 Samuel 5, 14 through 16, he had several more sons. The first there was Shemua, also called Shimea in 1 Chronicles 3, 5 through 8, Shobab, Nathan, and then Solomon. So Solomon is the fourth son born after he goes to Jerusalem. So he's actually the tenth son because 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 3 mentions six sons born to David at Hebron. So you have uh, <clears throat> Adonijah is the fourth son, Solomon's the tenth son, so Adonijah figures he has a clear shot and clear claim to the throne because he is a, a much older son than Solomon. Now in verse uh, 7, we see the conspiracy. This is all background. He doesn't just wake up one morning and say, okay, today we're gonna, I'm going to try to usurp the throne and, and we're going to get some people together and we're going to walk down to the, <clears throat> to the springs and we're going to get anointed as king. He's planned this out. He's thought about this maybe for years. And he has everything in place. He's mapped out this whole, uh, uh, this whole parade and the whole ceremony to elevate himself before all of the people. And he has found some co-conspirators who would rather have him as king than Solomon, and they are some of his father's closest advisors. And we meet them in verse 7. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. And then in verse 8, we see those whom he excluded. He excluded Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei and Rhea, and David's, as well as uh, David's mighty men, who were <coughs> excluded from uh, this uh, event with Adonijah. Now, who are these people? Have to get out your your uh, play card so you know who who the players are. Joab was the commander in chief of David's army, and he had a violent streak in him, and that was something that always bothered David. There was something about Joab that he didn't quite trust, even though he had to rely very heavily on Joab. Uh, Joab was the uh, son of Zariah, who was David's half-sister, so that means that Joab was David's uh, nephew. We see that reference in 2 Samuel 2.18, 1 Chronicles 2.16. And uh, Abishai and Azahel were his two brothers. And this, this is just a violent family. And uh, when I read through this section, I, I often think of that final scene in the uh, first Godfather movie uh, when 
uh, Al Pacino's finally taken over the family, and he exec- and he carries out the vendetta against everybody who's turned his back on his father. And you go through this whole scene where one guy after another gets killed, and that's that's pretty much what we're going to see in the first couple of chapters here. There's a security of the throne. First time we meet Joab in the scriptures is in Second Samuel chapter two, when his brothers Azahel and Abishai are are uh, are killed at the time that David has his victory at Helkath Hazarim against Ishbosheth's uh, rebel forces, and Abner is Saul's general who has survived and. Uh, when he is fleeing, Azahel is chasing him, and Abner reluctantly killed Azahel and, and, uh, and then later Abishai. And then Joab comes along and um, uh, assassinates Abner after a while uh, in order to, because he's afraid that Abner is going to work his way into David's favor. So... When that happened, David truly mourned over Abner, but it wasn't long before he soon made Joab his commander-in-chief. We see in Joab's character a mix of cunning and cruelty, loyalty, and he's the one who carries out the conspiracy to put Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, up at the front of the battle against the uh, when they're capturing the city of uh, Rabath Ammon. And but he gives David the credit for the capture of the city. So there's a uh, an element of, of tremendous loyalty to David uh, from Joab during that period of time. He also tried to bring a reconciliation between David and Absalom. But at the end of his life, his loyalty towards David faltered, and he began to ally uh, himself with Adonijah rather than with Solomon. The second person that's introduced there is Abiathar, the priest. Abiathar is the high priest at this time. He was the uh, son of Ahimelech, who was the high priest at Nob. This is a situation that uh, occurred back in 1 Samuel when David was uh, trying to escape, and he went to the priest at Nob uh, to, to get some bread, and because they helped him, uh, Saul came in and massacred all of the priests, except for an Ahimelech and Abiathar escaped. Uh, Abiathar was uh, one who helped David take the ark to Jerusalem. He was one of David's chief counselors. He was sent by David back to Jerusalem to to stay with uh, Absalom during the Absalom rebellion in order to protect the king's interests. But at the end of uh, David's reign, he again uh, has has his loyalty falter, and he's going to... help make Adonijah king rather than uh, Solomon. He is the last in Eli's line. Now, Samuel, 1 Samuel begins with this really corrupt priest, fat, uh, corrupt uh, priest named Eli with his two evil sons. And because of his corruption and disobedience to the Lord, God says that his line is going to end. Well, Eli's line passed through... um, uh, Ahimelech and uh, Abiathar, and this is going to end it. And then the line is going to shift to another priestly line, the line of Zadok. Zadok aligns himself with David here, and it is going to be the priestly family of Zadok that will serve in the millennial temple. When they build the huge temple during the millennium, it's going to be the priests of Zadok that serve in that temple. And you can pretty much identify some of the people who are in that priestly family even today. We have a jewelry store here in Houston, last name Zadok. That's from that priestly line. They're Levites. They're in the high priestly line. You can identify Levites by certain genetic markers today. But that's who will be established in the priesthood during the millennial kingdom. Now, those are the two that are mentioned who go along, and they're important because you have Joab, who's the commander-in-chief. He's got the military, and you have Abiathar, who has the priesthood, and that seems to indicate that God is behind this this uh, move of Adonijah's. But the ones that don't go along are equally significant. Verse 8, But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, 
and Shimei and Rhea and David's mighty men were not there. Well, this is important because Zadok represents also the priestly line. And he is the son of Ahitav, who according to First Chronicles six one, is a direct descendant of Eleazar, the third son of Aaron. He is serving as priest under David, along with Abiathar, and he is going to become the high priest after this uh, revolt is uh, taken care of, and Abiathar is uh, retired from the high priesthood. Benaiah, whose name means Yahweh has built up, uh, is the son of Jehoiada and is the captain of David's foreign bodyguard, according to 2 Samuel 8, 18, and 20, 23. He also was placed in command of the entire army of Israel every third month, and he was renowned for his uh, physical prowess and military skill among the uh, core group of David's mighty men known as the 30, mentioned in 2 Samuel 23, verses 20 to 23, and First Chronicles eleven twenty-two uh, to twenty-five, he was loyal to David during Absalom's rebellion, and he remains loyal to David during the uh, coup of Adonijah. Now, the third person mentioned here is really the most important of the group, and that's Nathan the prophet. And he's the most important because, as the prophet, he is the one who represents God. And from the time of the anointing of Saul by Samuel all the way through the Old Testament up to the time when the prophet John the Baptist baptizes Jesus as the uh, offered king of the Jews, the king of Israel is always anointed by a prophet, meaning they show, demonstrating that God is the ultimate authority in Israel, not the king. The king only serves under God, and the prophet is the one who is the kingmaker and the king designator. So when Nathan doesn't throw in with Adonijah, it's a clear sign that God is not backing Adonijah. But the people don't care. The people often go with the person who looks like they should be uh, king, as they did with Saul. Saul looked like he should be king, stood a head taller than everybody else. He was handsome. He was, uh, he was a powerful military leader. He had uh, tremendous charisma. But again, he was, he, like Adonijah, he was not authority-oriented. He was rebellious towards God, and that eventually led to his being removed from the throne. So Nathan is a prophet, and he has uh, been <clears throat> a key figure in the reign of David, and he is the one who is going to uh, really be instrumental in making sure that God's plan is carried out. The next person that's mentioned there is Shimei. Shimei is one of uh, 19 men in the Old Testament who are named Shimei, and this is the best known of the group. His name, he is Shimei, the son of Gera. He was a Benjamite and a kinsman of Saul. Now, there's still a faction, even though Forty years has gone by, there's still a faction of Benjamites who think that David took the throne away from Saul and they want to get the family of Saul back on the throne. Now, all of this is important because God has determined that the line of the seed, remember we've gone through this in Genesis, this seed promise, the seed of the woman is going to uh, crush the uh, heel of the, I mean, crush the head of the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, the first mention of, of the gospel. And then we have the seed of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and we go on down to the Davidic covenant, the seed of David. And so all these conspiracies to supplant David, to supplant the Davidic line, all has to do with, ultimately, I think, a key move in the angelic conflict. Even though Satan's not mentioned here in terms of any operation, we know that he's operating behind the scenes, just as God is. It's interesting that, that there's no mention of God in this section. There's no mention of, of Satan in this section. Uh, we just see how man is carrying things out, but we do know that there's still a spiritual dimension behind the scenes and that God is still working to bring about his purpose. 
So Shimei is a descendant of Saul and someone that a faction could ally itself with to uh, uh, against David. But he is not throwing his weight behind uh, Abiathar. Shimei was also one who rebuked David at one time back in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 21 because of uh, what David had he cursed David, rather that was in 2 Samuel 16.5, he cursed David for being a man of blood. And David seemed to accept this admonition uh, rather uh, humbly. And later he, uh, David allowed for the protection of Shimei. Of course, by this time, uh, by chapter 2, we'll see that Shimei shows his colors. He's just as uh, open to conspiracy and to taking the throne from Solomon as the others. He eventually shifts his loyalty, and David is going to encourage Solomon to uh, take care of Shimei. And initially he will show clemency to Shimei, but eventually uh, he will have to deal with him and uh, in justice. Okay, that gives us the who's who of verses 7 and 8. The two that go with Adonijah are Joab and Abiathar and the two that and the three that stick with David are Zadok, Benaiah and Nathan along with Shimei. Rhea we don't know anything about this is the only occurrence of his name and then David's mighty men who have their loyalty to David. Now this is what happens in the in the ceremony itself starting in uh, verse 9. Adonijah Sacrifice sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. Enrogel is a spring that is located near the, at the uh, junction of the Valley of Gehenna and the Kidron Valley. And so here we have a diagram of the, uh, city at the time of Solomon, the Right about here is where we have um, the uh, pool of Gihon, and down here, probably just off the map, is where uh, in Rogel is located, and it's further from the city. I think I have a little better picture right here. This is another uh, artist diagram. Uh, well, this valley coming down here on the right of the city is the Kidron Valley, this valley over here is not the uh, Valley of Gehenna. That is the uh, Tyropean Valley, also known as the Valley of the Cheesemakers. Uh, so the uh, spring of Enrogel is further, further, to the, uh, further to the south here, whereas uh, the Pool of Gehan is right up in this area, much closer to the city. So you need to have that geography in mind, it's very important for understanding the dynamics of this location. So here's another uh, picture of the way the city would have looked at the time of David. The Pool of Gahan is here. The Pool of Enrogel is, is further down to the lower left off the map. You can see in this diagram that the temple has not even begun to be constructed. Today, the Pool of Gahan looks something like this. I'm up on the where this picture is taken from basically this elevation right here looking down into the valley. And so this is where the Pool of Gahan was located, right in this vicinity. And the ridgeline, you can see a little bit how the uh, terrain is rising here on the right. That's that ridge, that finger that comes down, which is the location of the original city, of the Jebusite city that David had conquered. That gives you a good pictorial of what uh, the city looked like. It's not very big. It's not very large, but that, that's the, the city at the time. Now, Adonijah has clearly thought out the logistics of this thing, and he has planned it, and he has sheep and oxen and cattle all standing by for this enormous sacrifice. And, of course, all of that is going to take time, to kill and to sacrifice all of these animals on the altar and then to go through the procedure. And while that is taking place, word gets back to Nathan that something is amiss. 
And so we come to our third scene in verse 11. Nathan discovers the coup. He's going to recruit Bathsheba to help him inform David. Somehow David has got to become engaged, and he's got to intercede, and he has got to do something to prevent Adonijah from seizing the throne. And so we're introduced to the problem in verse 11, as Nathan describes it to Bathsheba. Nathan says to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. David's passive. He's unengaged. He doesn't know what's happening. Now, therefore, he says, Come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. See, in the ancient world, in a situation like this, if Adonijah had become king, he would have secured the throne by having Solomon killed and by having Bathsheba killed. So he, uh, that is, Nathan devises a plan. He says, this is what we're going to do. You're going to go into David first. You're going to go in and you're going to inform him. And then while you're telling him, then I'm going to come in behind you and I will confirm what you are saying. And then we have to get him engaged to come up with a plan and solve the situation. So this is exactly what's going to take place, and we see Bathsheba uh, taking her uh, taking her role to herself in verse uh, 15. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Parenthetical comment. Now the king was very old. Again, we're reminded of Abishag. Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king, so he's in bed, and uh, Ab- Abishag is. Uh, serving as his electric blanket. She's keeping him warm. And Bathsheba, there's no indication Bathsheba's bothered by this. This was something that was a normal practice, a standard procedure. So Bathsheba comes in and she shows her understanding of the protocol to the king. She bows and she does homage to the king. Now this is something that's very important here. They're, They're in a crisis But nobody's pushing the panic button. They're not running in, screaming or yelling, David, you need to do something. They follow protocol. They exercise self-discipline, self-control, and follow correct procedure in order to inform the king of the conspiracy to seize the throne. I was thinking about that today and, and reflecting upon our own culture. We live in a world today when very few people understand Protocol and young people are not raised to understand etiquette, social etiquette, social protocol, how you address adults, how you address uh, uh, different adults in different authority uh, situations. And we live in a, a, a culture that has moved into such informality. Uh, people don't know how to how to dress. I remember recently I was was at a funeral and I saw. Uh, people coming in and they were dressed in shorts because they had no idea how you uh, how you were to comport yourself in these kinds of situations. And it, once again, it's a lack of parental training, but it's also coming about because of the pressure uh, and the trends in our culture that these things really don't matter. And so people don't pay attention to the uh, rules of etiquette and and good manners. And the reason that etiquette and manners were developed was because of social recognition and probably through the influence of Christianity, but it's not limited to Christianity. It's a general uh, recognized thing among people in the world that that we all tend to be pretty self-absorbed and arrogant. And if we don't get our way, we tend to do what? Tend to get angry and irritated with each other. Well, you're not going to get much accomplished and you're not going to go very far if every time somebody doesn't get their way, they throw a temper tantrum. And so what developed over time was these rules of conduct uh, and instilling these rules of conduct and etiquette and manners into children so that uh, people who are sinners and self-absorbed can have a a measure of of self-control and self-discipline so that they can work together towards a common goal and accomplish things. And it's it's not always important to have good manners when everything is going well and everybody's happy, but when things start breaking down and they're not going well, 
You need to be trained in good manners and etiquette so that you do not become uh, uncivil. And that's part of what we see in our society today. We've lost a sense of civility, and people uh, get angry and flip each other off on the highway and the freeway whenever anything happens, and, and you have all of these a- actions of violence, from the a- violence in, in schools to violence, road rage on the highways, and all of this is a result of the fact that there's just been a failure to instill any kind of discipline. This, again, is a parental problem. Parents need to start teaching manners and protocol and etiquette to children from the time they're very young when they are just beginning to learn so that they learn to control themselves. They learn not to throw temper tantrums. They learn that they don't always get their way. They learn how to say please and thank you and yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, And this is going to go a long way. If you raise your children like this and instill these values in them and self-discipline, then when they're 19, 20, or 21 years old, that's how they're going to act, and they're going to stand out in a crowd. And if they get a job, they're the ones who are going to... uh, get get attention because they they will stand out. They will look different. They will act different. They will comport themselves different from the mass of peers around them who have no idea how to comport themselves or how to dress when they go to a job interview or or anything like that. And so this is very important. And we see all through uh, Kings the protocol involved in uh, in the uh, in the throne room. So Bathsheba goes to the throne. She bows down, pays homage to the king, and he says, what do you desire? And she tells him uh, that uh, she reminds him of his promise. Verse 17, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And this is the first of several times when David is going to be reminded of this promise regarding uh, Solomon. And so she informs him about Adonijah and what Adonijah is doing and the fact that they've got the cattle down there, and Abiathar and Joab are with him. And in verse 20 she says, And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after them. That's another reminder. Who is it that sits on the throne? It's your decision. Otherwise it will come to pass that when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. So while she's still speaking, then Nathan came in, verse 22, and Nathan confirms what she has said. They tell the king, here's Nathan the prophet. When he came in before the king, he bows before the king. Even though he's the prophet, he still shows uh, recognition of the authority, the position of the king, and he bows down with his face to the ground. And Nathan says, my lord the king, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? Is this what you've decided? This is our third reminder. For he has gone down this day and sacrificed Ephraim. He tells him all of this and how the people are having a, a banquet and celebrating and saying, Long live the king in verse 25. And he says, But as for me, your servant Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. So it shows that he has a agenda. He knows who would be loyal, who would not be loyal. And it re, he is revealing by this the fact that uh, Adonijah has been involved in this conspiracy. And then once again, he brings it to the king's attention. This is your decision. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king? And you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Now, he knows very well that David has designated Solomon as his heir. But he has to get the king engaged and to shake him out of this disengaged stupor that he's in. And then we see David taking charge and getting involved in verse 28. Then David said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. So apparently she had stepped out while Nathan was talking to them. Now she's back in in the room. And as the Lord lives, the king says, he swears an oath, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. So this is a reminder to her 
He remembers the promise. He swore this to her. Now, we don't know when this occurred. There's not a mention in Second Samuel of David making this promise to her. However, when we look at these other passages, we look at cross-references such as Second Chronicles chapter 22, and where David had clearly instructed Solomon to be the one to build the temple, gave him guidance as to how he should build the temple, that it was very clear before this that David had designated Solomon as his heir. So he swears an oath in verse 29, as, as the Lord lives, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bows down with her face to the ground and pays homage to the king and says, May my lord David the king reign forever. Then we come down to the next scene. Let's go back to our outline here. Nathan and Bathsheba informed David in verses 11 down through 37, and in verses 32 to 37, David is going to give instructions for the coronation of Solomon. So he calls in, he says, call in Zadok the priest. Now, think about how fast this has to be moving. Because while they're doing this, while they're trying to convince David to get engaged, Adonijah is just about... uh, a mile away having his inauguration party and his inauguration banquet and that most of the people are out celebrating the fact that he will be the king. Verse 32, David says, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king, and the king says, Take your servants and with Solomon put him on my mule. Now that was standard in the ancient world that the ruler rode a mule, not a horse. And, and for various reasons, but that was seemed to be a cultural thing in the ancient Near East. Take, uh, put him on a mule and bring him down to Gihon and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then take out the ram's horn, the shofar, and blow the trumpet and announce, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place. Now, the reason he's sending them down to Gahan, for one thing, it's closer. And so he's going to send them down. As soon as they come out of the, of the water gate and come down to the pool of Gahan and they anoint him, word is going to get to Adonijah fairly rapidly. And the idea is that he's Solomon is a half a mile closer to the throne than Adonijah is, and so they're not to waste any time. There's no popping circumstance. They're going to go down with the three key, key people, the man who's going to be the head of the army, the, the new high priest, and the prophet. They will anoint Solomon and then take him directly to David's palace, and he's going to sit on the throne, and that will uh, pull the rug out from under Adonijah. And this is exactly what happens. Verse 38 down to 40, describes what takes place, and we have the scene related to the anointing of Solomon by Nathan and Zadok in verses 38 down to 40, and they follow David's instructions uh, to the letter. And then when they blow the trumpet in verse 39, and the people shout, Long live King Solomon! Then all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Well, once this takes place, the word is going to get to Adonijah very quickly. Let me just say a couple of things about the anointing, the coronation itself. What would take place is they would bring out the horn of oil that is mentioned in verse 39. And then uh, they would take this oil from the tabernacle, from the tent of meeting. This is oil, and the horn that it was kept in was oil that went back to the anointing of the first high priest back during the time of Moses when they came out of of, uh, Exodus. According to the rabbis, and a lot of what the rabbis say is rather imaginative, but I think it's interesting just to bring in some of their ideas every now and then just to see what they think. They um, they were under the conviction that this oil 
was constantly renewed and it never went out, uh, never ran out, sort of like the oil in the uh, uh, menorah at, at Hanukkah. But there's no historical or biblical evidence that that would be true. The horn was used because a horn indicates strength, power, and authority of the leader. The bottle, that uh, a bottle would be something that was short and round and weak and brittle. A bottle was made by man, but a horn was made by God. And so there was also that implication that God was the one who was uh, establishing the throne and not man. God was the one who determined who would be king and not man. Oil was used because it symbolized honor and status. Uh, in Proverbs, we're told that a good name is better than oil. Oil lasts longer than water, and so it implies permanence and stability. Oil in- indicates that this is going to be a permanent dynasty. When we get down to verse 40 and we see the celebration that takes place, the people are playing on pipes. This is a uh, uh, the word for the pipes comes from a Hebrew word, khalil, which means to bore through. It was like a flute, and it was a reed initially that had holes in it. Later it was made of brass. Sometimes they would have two tubes that had holes in them, and they were played uh, at times of rejoicing, festivals, and at, as well as at, at funerals. So they rejoice with great joy. And then verse 49, word gets to, verse 41, excuse me, word gets to Adonijah. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard the sound of their rejoicing, and immediately they began to wonder what that was all about. When Joab heard the sound of the shofar, the trumpet, he inquired, what does this uproar in the city mean? mean?" And while he is speaking, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest, comes running in, and uh, Adonijah gives him permission to speak, and he informs them that David has made Solomon the king and that this has the approval of Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, as well as the Carathites and Pelathites. These were uh, non-Jews who were a part of David's uh, retinue, sort of his inner, uh, inner military guard. And at this point, he announces that Zadok and Nathan made him, made, have anointed Solomon king at Gahan, and that Solomon at this point is sitting on the royal throne, that the king's servants have come to congratulate the king, and that the deal is done. In verse four, ending in verse 48, he says, And the king also has said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. At that point, we get Adonijah's response. Uh, verses 41 to 40, 48, Adonijah learns he's been trumped, and in the final scene, he seeks grace from Solomon. So all the guests fear, uh, they tremble, they rise, everybody flees to their own house, so nobody would be associated with Adonijah Verse 50, we're told Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose and took hold of the horns of the altar. This would be a a, a way of seeking sanctuary, is to go to where, it doesn't say what altar, but it was probably the altar up on the uh, threshing floor, what is now the Temple Mount, where they the altar was built, and he would go and grab the horns of the altar as a sign that he was seeking a sanctuary, and wanted peace with Solomon. And so, so Solomon's told that Adonijah has laid hold of the horns of the altar, and uh, Solomon's response is very gracious. And he uh, says in verse 52, if he will show himself a worthy man, in other words, if he's loyal to me and there's no evidence of, of his rebelliousness, then not one hair of his he- he- head shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, if he continues to lust for the throne, then he shall die. So Solomon treats him in grace, which was very unusual for an ancient Near Eastern potentate. If you were outside of Israel, you would have just killed Adonijah. 
And once again, this is drawing the contrast between Solomon. As we'll learn about Solomon, we're told at this stage of his life, he loved the Lord with all of his heart. He's totally devoted to the Lord. He's grace-oriented. He's a mature believer, and he is going to deal with his enemies in grace. So they send for uh, Adonijah. They bring him to him, and, and Solomon tells him to go to his house. Well, that gets us through the first chapter. Now, the point of all this, I want you to remember, not just the historical details, that helps us see the flow, but what is happening here is God is working behind the scenes to bring about and to secure the promise that he made to David in the Davidic covenant that uh, a son of his would sit on the throne. And God had indicated that that would be Solomon, And it is through the line of Solomon that the Messiah is going to come. And that's what goes on in in Kings is the tracing of the seed through the line of David, Solomon, all the way down, and how God is protecting that uh, despite all of the bad things and the disobedience and the idolatry and everything else. God is still in control, and he's the one who, despite the chaos of history, is still going to bring about and accomplish his plan. Next time we'll come back and look at David's words, David's advice to Solomon, uh, his last words just before uh, David dies. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your faithfulness, and, and to see as we look at just the conspiracies that takes play, take place and the activities that happen, that the people at that time are no different than the people today, and that it is uh, through the arrogance and self-absorption of man that so much evil comes into human history. However, this is countered by your grace, and it is through your grace that we have a perfect solution to all the problems in history, and that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you challenge us with the things that we study and that we may may come to a greater understanding of who you are and what you've done in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.